Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's time for another episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this time, buddy, we have a great guest on the podcast. He's written so many books about topics that we love. And his latest book has been gripping both of us as of late. Out on February 27th through Diversion Books, it is Drums and Demons, The Tragic Journey of Jim Gordon by Joel Selvin. An amazing book that I can't say enough about, but we'll say plenty here on the podcast this week. Joel, welcome, and uh, thank you for taking time to chat with us. I want to let people know that you've also written these books like Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and The Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. Here Comes the Night, The Dark Soul of Burt Burns, and The Dirty Business of Rhythm and Blues. Sly and the Family Stone and Oral History and many other books. But holy cow, this book gripped both of us. And once I picked it up and got into a role, I could not set it down. Joel, what made you decide to tell the story of Jim Gordon? Why is it important? And how long did it take you to write the book from beginning to end? Well, the Jim Gordon story has been stuck in my head since Jim went to jail. It was just such a cipher. There was this event and an arrest, and it was all over, and he was gone. There was no backstory. There was no underlying narrative. So that stuck with me for many, many years. It was actually the suggestion of an editor at a publishing house who uh, I've worked with on a number of books, and <clears throat> Matt said, you should do something with crime and rock and roll. And I couldn't think of a more um, prominent, more vivid, more dramatic crime in rock and roll than Jim killing his mother. It took about three and a half years. I, um, I, I kind of started pulling stuff together during the pandemic. Uh, I was able to acquire uh, some research from some people who had Jim's cooperation on a book in like 1988 and 1989. They, they weren't professional journalists, but they had many interviews with Jim in prison. They had access to his, his medical records, his diaries, and the, they'd given up on this book long, long time ago. I'd heard about it. 
was able to acquire the research. So there's a ton of stuff that just wouldn't have been available to anyone else uh, that helped really fill out the narrative. It's a, an, an incredibly grim story, as you guys know. It, it just emerged on the front pages. But what's behind it is years and years of Jim struggling with severe mental illness. Bravely, I think, courageously uh, battling and losing the battle. And the, the, the most important thing that I learned in doing this book was that schizophrenia is ridiculously common, ridiculously. One in 100 in the general population. That was like multiple sclerosis is one in 10,000. So all those people you see out in the streets looking for a place to sleep under the freeway, they're hearing voices in their heads. That's the essence of what was the problem with Jim. And it's, it's amazing how you tell it though, Joel. At the beginning of the book and at the beginning of his story, he's a kid who loves drums and he really gets into it. And you set the tone prior to the voices showing up. You talk about the different levels of the voices and the different effects that they have on them and how he's able to keep them at bay. And folks, this is some of the best reading about this that you'll ever find. I guess what I want to know is what was your situation with this book, etc., when you found out about Jim passing? Ah, so I had finished the book and sent the manuscript into uh, the, the publisher and took a vacation and I went to Hawaii. And the first morning I was in Hawaii, the phone rang, and it was Mike Post. Now, Mike Post was Jim's closest friend in high school. They started in the music business together. He's Jim's daughter's godfather and Jim's first wife's closest friend. And when I first started to research the book, I, I of course, contacted Mike Post and, and asked him, you know, if there was any opportunity to cooperate. And, you know, oh, no, nope, nope, nope. No, don't want to relive that. Don't want to talk about it. I sent him a couple books. He called back. He said, no, you you're, you could be the guy to do this. But I just, I, we can't. There's just, this is just a nightmare for us. So I respected that. I, I certainly understand trauma. And, and Mike was helpful uh, it, through the course of research. If I had a question or something, he would answer it or anything. But there he is on the phone in Hawaii. And he says, Joel, get your head around this. Jim died. That had never occurred to me. And there I am in Hawaii. Um, and what Mike said was that uh, the family wanted to get out in front of everything and they wanted to put out a release, but they didn't know how. And he suggested that I might. So I said, sure, I'd be glad to. And we put out a press release announcing Jim's death. And at that point, all this switched around. And Mike posed and Jim's wife, Jill, and her daughter, Amy, all came into the tent, cooperated and participated, and I rewrote the manuscript to uh, put their, their input into this. And the whole thing completely changed in an instant about Jim, in an instant, because when I was doing this research, fellas, not everybody wanted to talk. There was a lot of pushback, like, you gotta be kidding me, I'm, not, I'm never gonna talk about that. It, it, it was rough. And then in an instant after he died, he became a victim of mental illness in the public mind. And suddenly there was a measure of compassion that he had never known before. Well, back then, as you point out in the book very well, there was no such thing as dual diagnosis. 
you were either just crazy or, as Jim's parents thought, just on drugs and alcohol, and that's your problem. The two together were masking something far more heinous and far more damaging. Yeah, the psychiatrist that Jim uh, saw uh, really couldn't pin him down either. They 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 read it as uh, depressive, maybe um, some mood swings indicate bipolarism, but really they didn't see the schizophrenia until after the crime. And that's because he was so high functioning. He was carrying on a fully professional career at the top of the game in a highly competitive field. He had it all going on. He'd go see these psychiatrists and tell them how horrible he felt. What he didn't do was tell them he was hearing voices. He didn't tell anybody that throughout most of his life because I'm sure there was a lot of shame involved with that. And he knew that if he started telling people, it would derail his career. And as we know through history, we have treated mental illness and people with mental illness very, very poorly. The thing that really struck me throughout this is that it was really disappointing to see that none of his friends stepped up a little bit more to help him, to talk to him, to reach out, to do something kind for him, even that might have made a difference in all of this. And with all of the backstabbing, with all of the two-facedness and with all of the ego in the industry, it's really a shame that nobody gave enough of a fuck to care about this gifted, magical musician that changed every single fucking song that he played on. That's true. He had such a, a golden boy role going. Uh, I want to talk about the music for a second because, you know, his involvement in stuff like Good Vibrations and uh, as being a key part of Layla or the way that you tell the story about him becoming the drummer on You're So Vain from Carly Simon, all these things. How he fit in on Gordon Lightfoot's Sundown. And you told me something that I always had wrong. I never knew that that was him with John Lennon banging it out on Power to the People. So, you know, we learn a lot when we do this podcast. But I learned a lot about Jim Gordon, things that I was always curious about. It's funny you said that earlier, Joel. It's a lot of curiosity 
being found out here, things that we never knew that were so dark and insidious. The story was never told. Uh, nobody cared to look back at it. That's just how it was. It, it was such a, a black hole. Uh, people just looked away. Nobody visited him in jail. One person came to his trial to show support. Jay Osmond, the drummer of the Osmond Brothers, who had been on stage with Jim in the Andy Williams show in Vegas in 67. He didn't get much help. Uh, Jackson Brown uh, picked up Jim at a, uh, a a real low point and, and gave him a real helping hand. And, th and there was a guy who worked with Burton Cummings, a road manager named Jim Martin, and he took really good care of Jim. But it's impossible. He was a, he was mentally ill. He was schizophrenic. Uh, it's very difficult to have him establish any kind of relationships with people. Friendships, certainly romantic relationships, are out of the question. He was living behind a mask. And you're so right, uh, Marcus, that, that I really feel like there was tremendous amount of shame and bewilderment. He felt like all this stuff that was going on in his head was something he should be able to master, that he was intelligent and capable, and, and, and this stuff was out of his control, and he didn't feel that was right. He wanted to be able to control it. He felt he could. And so, yeah, I'm sure he was very embarrassed, not just because of, of the effect it would have on his career, but because of how he felt about how he presented himself to the world. But he also was able to control it by playing drums. And the thing that was most disturbing about that aspect of his mental illness is the fact that the alcohol and the cocaine do a better job controlling mm. the voices than any of the pills that he ever took. Or the time he got the Haldol dose reversed and i couldn't believe that he was still alive after that neither could his psychiatrist yeah what do you think got him to the point where he finally shared the voices existence with someone when he tells stacy bailey about them so she didn't really understand it and i didn't get it he had seen a psychiatrist uh at uh, valley presbyterian i think it felt really good about the meeting and went out to get something to eat but the voices wouldn't let him eat and he got on the payphone from outside the Denny's or Kentucky Fried Chicken or wherever he was, and called the shrink back and told him, man, you know, I, my head's filled with voices. They won't let me eat. I just need to go somewhere where I can eat. And the guy said, you come back right now. And he put him into residential treatment. Jim stayed that time for about two months and nothing happened. Things got worse. He was off drugs and alcohol, so that buffer was missing. And he, he checked out against medical advice and went home and tried to kill himself. It's really a frightful story. Now, how were you able to paint and describe his, I don't know if it's descent, what the proper term is, because in literature and in terms we use descent into madness when I don't even think that's really proper or correct. But the whole process of how the voices started small and got bigger and bigger and bigger until they overtook him. How were you able to get so descriptive effectively and make everybody who reads it feel the discomfort? of what was happening because i'll tell you what i was reading this book and i felt really uncomfortable at times me too me too 
Yeah. Yeah, and you wrote it. <laughs> uh, uh, there was periods of time when I had to revise the uh, manuscript. I would get to that second part, and I know what's coming, and my my, my stomach would just turn sour. Uh, and 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 also, uh, this is an unusual project, and I have a tremendous appetite for work, and 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 sometimes um, I will sit and and write for ten, twelve hours. Whoa. There were times with this book where I had to leave the office after about two hours of writing. I I get it. And, and here's the thing. I read the whole book, the last few pages. I don't want to say too much, but that last stretch, an incredible read. One of the most descriptive, almost to be too much, like you said, to the point where when I was rereading and going through my notes and stuff, I didn't reread the end of the book, Joel, sorry. But it's a tribute to how good you did in capturing the sheer terror of what it must be like to be him in that situation, not to mention his mother. Hey, can we pause for a minute and come back and continue the conversation? Stay hardy. Keep with the party. Yeah. From Crooked Eye, we'll get some pints and we'll be back with Joel Selvin here on the podcast. We've been talking about it, man, but it's here. The 10th anniversary of Crooked Eye Brewery, our sponsor and our friends right there in the heart of Happer, are pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014, and even I can do the math on that. 10 years, guys. Paul and Paul and Chris and Jeff, the brewer of all the wonderful fresh brews they make right there on the premises. Matt and the gang from uh, Salty Vets Barbecue have been part of things. The Crooked Eye Band. Can I hear it for the Crooked Eye Band, ladies and gentlemen? You can't see me. I'm clicking my lighter. Don't light up the hawk. Don't. Uh, <laughs> he's got a hawk in the background on his branch there. Don't start a fire there in the studio. No way. Hey, listen, man. Get out the Crooked Eye anytime. Every night there's stuff going on. Follow him on Facebook and all that. But I just got to offer all kinds of big hugs all around. And we need to get in there and just uh, spend some time with the gang to celebrate 10 years of making it great. Thank you, Crooked Eye, for your support. And thank you for the wonderful beers that you have been producing for the past decade. Raising a pint to the next 10 with Crooked Eye and the Imbalance History Together. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Back in the Dark Doc Media Studios with Joel Selvin talking about uh, his book. Whew. You're a brave man to take on this topic. Uh, Drums and Demons. It's the story of Jim Gordon. Most of us never, ever got to know anything beyond what we'd read in the papers or maybe a special story here or there, uh, you know, in one of the rock mags. But no one really knew what you've told us here in this book it's an amazing read and for anybody who loves rock history like me and marcus you gotta read this well jim's life and his career mirrored the emergence of rock culture really uh starting out with the everly brothers uh, his his feet right in the 50s rock and roll right from the beginning all those incredible sessions that he did in Hollywood uh, 64 to 69 that was when Los Angeles sort of exploded as a recording center and Jim was right there you know Bill Spector, Sonny and Cher Beach Boys, Nancy Sinatra everybody all that stuff was exploding out of Los Angeles you keep saying And then he went and joined the rock band world. Delaney and Bonnie, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, and then, of course, Derek and the Dominoes. So he, his career and his life just, just it arcs right over the entire growth of the record industry and rock culture. I mean, he returns to Hollywood to become a session player again, and he's playing on some of these incredible landmark records where You're So Vain or Sundown or Ricky Don't Lose That Number or even I'm a I'm Woman by Helen Reddy. I mean, he was uh, I Thank God I'm a Country Boy by John Denver, uh, Midnight at the Oasis by Maria Moldar. It's just a vast array of scientific drums that made those things hit records. But you won't need no harem, honey, when I'm by your side. And you won't need no
two things. First, his playing was so special and unique that he would add texture. And you mentioned a few of the records, some of the Harry Nielsen records he played on, same thing, Joel, where it was what he did musically with the drums, uh, tonally, the way he hit, how he did things, uh, and, and the fact that he picked up sessions from Hal Blaine, who is kind of like his hero, uh, as he got into being a session guy. And then Jim Keltner came along and Jim Gordon was kind of his hero, this this chain in that wrecking crew drum seat, you know? Not to mention Jim being part of the sessions for River Deep and Mountain High with the great Earl Palmer at the kit. And he would go in and do the thing like he did on that one Beach Boys record with the, uh, the uh, slits in the orange juice containers just to add something different even if he wasn't playing behind the kit, but when he was, oh my God, his tone, his touch. So good. Amazing what he could do. Jim was a very musical drummer. Right. Uh, it, it wasn't timekeeping and backbeat stuff. It, it, he drove his drums into the composition. And uh, the the level of intuition part of, uh, the, is what makes Jim's drumming so amazing. It's just, uh, yeah, I've had drummers explain it to me, you know, oh, you retired the second beat and then it puts a roll in the whole measure. And But that's not it. I mean, it really requires this incredible intuition to be able to divide time that way. And, and, and everybody who saw Jim play was blown away, especially other drummers, because that's the level he operated on. So, you know, you look at a record like You're So Vain and you can see that the drum part, Jim is orchestrating that track from the drum store. Another thing besides the fact that you were able to be so descriptive in his uh, mental health issues, you were also able to really tell the story of his music and the impact he had on every single song he played on. He was a special kind of musician, a gifted drummer, somebody who could change a song completely. And you had mentioned in there that he had played on some Carol King demos but didn't play on Tapestry album. Were those demos that he played on the early demos for Tapestry, or were they other songs that she had written? Don't know what the uh, song titles are. Uh, uh, they're not on the uh, session sheet, but uh, it's it's preparatory to Tapestry. So if it wasn't stuff that was going on Tapestry, it was stuff that was intended to go on Tapestry. Those were her first solo sessions uh, on the West Coast. And uh, he played on the, the, the album that she did with uh, Lou Adler called The City. Oh, I am a simple soul. It takes a 
and that's got a bunch of good Carol King songs on it too. But um, the the after that, Adler decided she used to be a solo artist, and Jim was in on the beginning of that. He was in on the first Neil Young solo sessions, and and you know he played on Birds records. Uh, the, he, he, right. There isn't anything that was going on in Los Angeles that he wasn't part of. They brought him in to do the drums on Marrakesh Express. Right. Would you know where riding on the Marrakesh Express? You know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express They're taking me to Marrakesh All on board the train All on board the train I've been saving all my money just to take you there I smell the garden in your predicted they were going to be huge to somebody after that session right he told his wife he thought they were going to be yeah, incredible yeah. yeah the other thing that was amazing was if there was a group that was the name on the front door and they showed up for a session and they heard jim was there to play the drummers not only made way they sat in the corner and watched because they wanted to see what this guy was up to they wanted to see it for themselves arlie simon's uh drummer andy newmark had played the first no slouch by the way no slouch joel no no he's uh you know he did fresh with sly stone now in time is a, a incredible piece of drumming but uh he did the first track of uh you're so vain they they brought in a, a british session drummer and then they brought in jim who just happened to be in london that night andy sat in the drum booth with jim and just watched for five hours 60 takes while Jim cut that track. Yeah, Jim Keltner uh, met Jim at a session that he thought he was going to be playing. Uh, and he shows up, and there's somebody else's drum set set up. Lou Sparkletone Ludwig kit. And he goes, oh, you know. And that's where he, he met Jim Gordon. It changed his life. A absolutely changed his life. He told me that he had to learn how to play like Jim in order to not play like Jim. Right, right. Lee Sklar, same thing. He, he was, he was uh, in the studio... Uh, with his teenage rock band and, and showed up and, and there were all these session musicians there and one of them was Jim Gordon. At one point, he had to have multiple crews moving multiple kits from session to session, like the Stones move their stage now, you know, two stages piggybacking and stuff. He had people going everywhere and Hal would give him a lot of work when he was first coming along, but it got a life of its own. And really, he became the go-to guy for so many people and I think those guys like Keltner and some of the others just wanted to be around what was going on there because it was pretty cool first. And second, they were learning stuff from each other. It was an incredible time uh, in Los Angeles recording studios, with all that amazing records and music going on. And yeah, there was a, a tremendous amount of collaboration and stuff rubbing off. And and even amongst all those extraordinarily talented musicians, Jim just stood out strictly because of his musical talent. It, it, you know, his character, he kept behind this genial mask, easygoing guy. That's what they all thought he was. But they also, they didn't know him. I don't know, talk to people that have been in studios with him for hundreds of hours, didn't know he was married, didn't know he had a kid, never had a meal with him. The schizophrenics do not form relationships easily. So Jim played drums, 
That was his. That, that was the space where he was most secure, where he was most safe, where the demons couldn't follow him. Is when, when, when he's got his feet on those pedals and those sticks in his hand, and and he's in, engaged in the rhythmic entrainment and the report of the drums. It's a hypnotic kind of thing, and 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 it defeats the schizophrenia. It defeated the voices. And in the middle of all this, some people arrive. Delaney and Bonnie, which gets Clapton out of his shell, some of the most fun he had playing in a long time, right? Uh, make room for Mr. Leon Russell. Make room for Dr. John. Make room for Joe Cocker, which leads to the Mad Dogs and Englishman debacle, right? It, was, it wasn't going so well at first, and then it turned into this amazing thing which they happened to capture. And there he is in the middle of it. He was that guy at that time in 1969. He was the king of drums in Hollywood. Uh, Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer were the uh, old school. They were the establishment. Uh, Jim Gordon was the young, new rock guy. He was the, the modern uh, drummer. And, and he was able to take that and, and bring it to the stage with Delaney and Bonnie and the Mad Dogs and, and Derek and the Dominoes. And, and you got to remember, in 1969, the, the scene had kind of shifted away from hit records. That, the, that was Led Zeppelin. Was, they were the big attraction on, the, on the, the concert circuit that fall. They were doing two and a half hour sets. Bonzo was doing a half hour drum solo. Uh, the Who were touring Tommy that fall. Uh, the Stones came back and had this enormous tour. So, like, live rock bands were suddenly a big deal, a big thing. And and, and uh, Jim jumped aboard the Delaney and Bonnie thing, which is, of course, where he hooked up with Clapton on the Blind Faith tour. And then the Mad Dogs and Englishmen, which was really, you know, the, the same guys, uh, Carl Radel on bass. And, and, and I don't know, Whitlock wasn't in the Mad Dogs thing. But, you know, that was the beginnings of the Derek and the Dominoes deal. And Derek and the Dominoes, their first job was backing George Harrison on his solo album. I mean, that was the, the absolute height of rock aristocracy at that point. One that shocked me and blew me away was the fact that he played drums on the movie soundtrack to the movie Blackula about the black vampire. Also, the drums on the low spark of High Heeled Boys is absolutely magnificent. And just the feel and the vibe that he gives off and the fact that he's able to do it with everybody he plays with incredible what a talent he was one of the few people that could do that too marcus he could drift into traffic right for that little phase there and then drift off and be part of this thing and while he was still playing with that guys or touring with the everleys or doing other things he would still be jumping back to la and doing sessions and recording with people for things that they may take him out on the road for in the future it was just it was a self-propelling energy source it was kind of cool i sort of think of uh the studio musicians is a kind of a, a unique sort of heroic enterprise. Uh, it's it's selfless. Uh, it's collaboratory. It's uh, like being a knight of the realm. 
yeah. and going into battle for whatever Lord has you that day. And they, the, the aesthetic and it, it is to create success, create great music, and to, to subliminate your ego, yourself, to a greater piece of work. So I, I have a lot of admiration for the whole session musician mentality. And, and Jim was the epitome of that. I'll tell you, there's a point in the story where things are starting to get dark, where the voices emerge. He's with Rita Coolidge, who was pretty early in her career as a recording artist, and he hits her. And he just confesses to it like, hey, matter of factly. And she moves on. And then, you know, things get kind of, really get kind of weird when Chris O'Dell is in the picture and there's the incident with the knife. And all of this stuff is starting to get beyond a little bit more than the normal 70s boyfriend rock star crazy shit. This is getting into some real psychotic things. And the, the, the triangles too with Jim and Leon because uh, him and Rita took up together, right? There was always that thing where it was like, ah, I got her, I got her away from Chris Christopherson, but she's with him now. That kind of stuff that you portray very well. And then his time with Chris O'Dell, which really is the beginning of the end of him being able to to have any kind of meaningful relationship. The changes that are happening in him, are, he can't eat. The voices are getting louder, and they're telling him to do stuff now. Or now they're beginning to punish him if they don't get their way. And Osa's voice, his mother's, starts to become the loudest voice, the most controlling. And he actually, in reality, starts to blame her for all the stuff the voices are telling him in his head. All the psychiatrists that deal with schizophrenic are familiar with the uh, command hallucinations, the voices that tell you to do things. And then if you don't punish you with a headache that is beyond any comprehension. They call it the electric hat band. And it was a sort of headache that would put you on the floor and make you wet your pants. That was the, the symptom. That's, that's one of the most extreme symptoms of any mental illness. How was Brian able to pull it off and get away with it, whereas Jim wasn't? Well, uh, I don't think Brian pulled it off. Uh, I got away with it for many, 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 many years. Uh, I, th I think his life was a disaster uh, for 20 or 30 years. Uh, it was only in the 90s with his current wife and the advent of really sensible uh, psychotropic medical treatment uh, that Brian's been able to like have anything like a life between the gutters. He was a, a, a mess with... Uh, three years in his bedroom and then the whole Dr. Landy episode. Um, if Brian didn't act out violently, very few schizophrenics do. When you were writing this book, I'm sure you had so much material that you had to cut out of the book because you had so much great material to work with. Were there any stories or any moments that you had to leave out that you can share? I don't think there was anything that I quote had unquote to leave out. I was conscious of that there's a grown daughter uh there's people who were close to jim who were part of this story I, I wanted to thread the needle of being fair to the survivors and being conscious of their pain while at the same time practicing compassion for jim and you were talking about assaults on the, on on the girlfriends and and you know those weren't like 
an Ike Turner kind of thing where he was using violence as a way to control the relationship. Those were just explosions that were inexplicable to Jim as they were to anybody else. You know, a lot of times he'd have one of those episodes that wasn't as violent. And afterwards, he'd be like, what are you all looking at me for? Because he didn't know where he went in that minute, minute and a half. He lived in a different reality than the people he was with. The bottom line of schizophrenia is that that their their reality is altered. It doesn't match ours. And they're going to be out of step. And as hard as they try to stay in step, they're going to falter. And a lot of times, out of this kind of mental state comes great art, too. Think about his drumbeat on Apache, which is like legendary, right? Most sampled uh, drumbeat in history, yeah. In history, and, and, and the, the, the jumping on point for what became hip-hop. Marcus and I were laughing about it because he was also the drummer on Rock the Boat by the Hughes Corporation, thereby bringing in the disco drums era. So I like to know where you got the notion. Said I'd like to know where you got the notion. Rock the boat, don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat, I don't tip the boat over. Rock the boat, I don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat. You know, <laughs> but there he's part of that as well as, you know, all the other stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, you can't overlook his talent and the impact that he had on the music industry and on the people uh, that he uh, worked with. I mean, just looking at the list of songs that he participated in is wild. Joe Cocker. Bigger Than Both of Us, Hall & Oates, the very first album I ever bought with my own money. I mean, these albums all have an important place in music history, and like all the other members of the Wrecking Crew, he played a vital piece in this. Did you enjoy researching and writing this book, even though at times it was really hard and uncomfortable? Well, I love the music. Uh, I I, I love uh, uh, tracing... Uh, Jim's work on, you know, 100 people's records uh, and finding parts uh, that I hadn't found before, uh, records that I wasn't aware of. L.A. Reggae by Johnny Rivers. What a surprise that record was.
Not so much because of Johnny Rivers, but maybe more because of Dean Parks and, and Larry Carlton and, and, and Jim and Joe Osborne. Right, all playing uh, together, right? Oh, it's an awesome, awesome studio crew, and the tracks are just unbelievable. He got into so many things and, and into so many places in legendary spots, like all his drum parts on Steely Dan's Pretzel Logic. He just made that album more musical. that's what jim did and you know marcus you're talking about all these playlists it's just staggering right but because of the crime jim's just been erased from the the contemplation of of, of rock history there, there's apparently a, a rolling stone list of the greatest drummers he's barely mentioned rock and roll hall of fame for jim gordon never right his black mark is so large that it suppressed one of the greatest bodies of work in rock history. And and that's one of the real goals of the book, is I really want to establish what Jim did as an his artistic life and and it's 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 monumental. I hope that the people who turned their back on him and refused to understand what was going on in his world read this. And I hope they feel a little bit of shame for that because a kind word here and there could have made a big fucking difference in Jim Gordon's life. Well, let me tell you what Mike Post told me. What did Mike Post tell you? Mike Post told me that he had felt guilty all this time because he hadn't been able to help Jim. And when he read the book, he came to understand that he couldn't have helped Jim. I mean, those doctors really did try. Was it Auerbach was one of them? and One or two of them really did try to help him with what they knew, but... Like I said earlier, we knew too little about dual diagnosis. In the, the advancement of his problems, his mom's voice emerges and it causes what he called fire in my brain. She becomes the target of all this. And even as all this is going on, you show how he was working with Jackson on Here Come Those Tears Again on The Pretender. Or you mentioned it, Marcus, Rich Girl from Hall & Oates, right? These are songs that you mentioned that he was working on as this whole thing's falling apart. And people start to feel the sting, the incident with Diana Whitman. And I mean, it's one thing after another, and the voices get stronger and louder. Oh, yeah. And he's, he's out there on the hill in the back of his house. Yes. Pulling weeds out in the in the hot sun. and Or he takes down all the, all the plaques. Ah, oh, they're shit. Throw them away. And he puts them out at the curb. Then he brings them all back and puts them back. It goes on five times a day. And it's, it's, we all see quirks in people we know people who struggle right 
But neighbors saw that stuff happening every day, Joel. I can't even imagine. I mean, he even had himself committed. I mentioned the Haldol overdose. He got the, the dose and the t- and number of times reversed and should have probably just been gone there. I accident- I worked for a pharmaceutical company when I was a kid, accidentally dosed myself with that stuff one time. It is powerful. And psychotropics are not to be trifled with. Then you know that it has a side effect of constricting your rib cage and 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 making it feel like you've got a straight jacket on. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Contemplate playing the drums while you've got this side effect squeezing your rib cage. Then this voice has told him not to play the drums ever again, right? It starts to go to even more extremes. I don't know. He even tries treatment with his mother. Even while all this is going on, he's still working. He turns down working with Dylan, basically hanging up with him after a kind of a shortened phone call, you know, and basically the voices tell him, do not play another note. Holy shit. Yeah, that's he's behind the kit at a sound check in Las Vegas for Paul Anka. He was so pissed off that they'd made him turn down the Dylan job that he called up Paul Anka and pretty much volunteered for this gig. And, and he, he went out and, and, and hit the drums once, and that was it. The voices told him that he'd die if he hit him again. He told the musical director he had psychological problems and couldn't do the gig. Can you imagine? And he went home and, and, and checked right into a mental hospital, and it was, it was a disaster. I, I, I think there's like something like 15 mental hospital uh admissions between 78 and 83 Something like that yeah there were a lot of them why should somebody read this book who maybe doesn't know who jim gordon is specifically this is an unbelievable dramatic story uh could have uh, uh could happen to anybody that's what frank zappa said and and uh if it's just chemicals in the brain it could happen to anybody yeah, no, it's a, it, this is a story that has its own drama. You don't even have to know who, uh, uh, what the records are. The records are, are, are elements of his career, and his career is a pinnacle that he scales so that when he falls from grace, he makes a classic Greek drama out of the whole thing. It, it, it couldn't be more Greek. It is absolutely, uh, stunningly... Um, what you want to say, uh, archetypical. After reading the book, I can't help but think of an alternate universe, Joel, where Osa goes straight away and doesn't see him, and all the stuff that happens towards the end of the book doesn't happen, and she goes down there, and what happens for Jim after that, I'm not sure what happens for her, but I sure would like to have seen what the alternate universe for them would have been like versus the tragic ending that we see in this book. It is that. It is a ghastly, tragic ending. And uh, there's something so deeply emotionally resonant about the matricide thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not that we haven't, all of us, wanted to kill our mothers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a bad man. But it passes really quickly. And it is a, an act out of classic Greek drama, and it, it 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 has this incredible, horrifying resonance. Yes, it does. Now, how were you able to get the details of those last 
few months of Jim's life up through the murder, where were you able to find that information? Because that's a hard part of the story to find out. And you said earlier that a lot was not known about anything other than what we read in the news. Well, there was uh, interviews with Jim out of the uh, prison that I had access to. Uh, there were a couple of uh, associates that befriended Jim during that period of time and, and, and really did an incredibly touching thing. Uh, and, and then all the blue monkeys, I knew all those guys, they, they, they were playing with Jim right up until the murder. Right. So, I mean, there was a lot of things. I, I, I mean, I, I talked to a guy that had run into Jim after the killing. Jim had gone to a bar. And he knew Jim, and he saw Jim at the bar, and he didn't—he he didn't understand why the cuffs of Jim's khakis were all covered in mud. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. it wasn't mud. No. He's Joel Selvin. His book is Drums and Demons: The Tragic Journey of Jim Gordon. It's out on February 27th through Diversion Books, wherever you get yours. We always encourage people, Joel go to their local bookstores and if they're not already stocking it to make sure that they order it for them. Amen. Uh, but it is available everywhere and you will not be disappointed or be able to put it down, especially if you're a fan of the man, Jim Gordon. I am. So I thank you for doing this as hard as it was to do and read. Thank you very, very much for, for, for making the story complete, I guess is probably the best way to thank you. I appreciate you guys. As talking to me, uh, you know, you do these things by yourself. When the book comes out, then you get an opportunity to find out how it registers and how your work affects people. And you guys have been very encouraging. I feel really good about the book. I'm very proud of it. I'm and proud of it because Jim's life is so amazing. And Jim's story is so important. Uh, there's a good sentence or two in there, but really the, the power of the book is Jim's story. Do you want to give out your website, your social media information so that people can get more information? And if they're not familiar with any of your other books, they can get more information about your books. JoelSelvin.com. Yeah, go, you know, check me out. There's a bunch of uh, audio files or some videos and you know, certainly the news about all my uh, literary efforts are in there. So JoelSelvin.com. Uh, hit me up on Facebook and, um, you know, email me at AOL, Joel Selvin. Sounds good. And are you working on your next book? I'm going to go work with uh, songwriter Barry Mann, who, with his wife, wrote about a hundred oh, great songs. Great stuff. And she's recently deceased, and he's thinking about legacy, and he, he deserves yeah. to have his deeds inscribed. He has been cast in this uh, podcast a couple times because of his amazing songwriting. We got to get out of this place. Absolutely. <laughs> Exact the window. Thanks to Joel Selvin for being on the podcast this week. And when you get the feedback about all this, come back and talk to us about it. You bet, fellas. Thanks a lot. Alrighty, Joel Selvin, thank you very much for your time and best of luck with the book. Till the next time that we gather around these microphones in the Dark Doc Media Studios, I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this has been the imbalanced history of rock and roll.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 